Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today we have the opportunity to once again bring you another physician-focused episode, this time sitting down with the amazing Dr. Casey Humbert to guide us through her approach to post-operative rehabilitation for the Brostrom Repair. Dr. Casey Humbert is the Chief of Foot and Ankle Orthopedics at the University of Pennsylvania, and she is also the Founder and Coordinator of Program and Surgical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Well, Dr. Humbert, thank you so freaking much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to come and hang out with Dan and I on the podcast. We really appreciate having you. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Something that we would see typically in the clinic. Why would you decide that someone is a good candidate, a good surgical candidate for a Brostrom repair versus continuing conservative care? The Brostrom repair is a completely nonsense surgery, I always jokingly say, because it's the only ligament in the body that you can just throw stitches and repair and it will actually do really, really well. You can't do it with an ACL, right? For an ACL, you have to take tissue from somewhere else. Tommy John's, you have to take tissue from somewhere else, loop it around in order to replace it. The brostrum is where you take the ligaments that are around the ankle and you tighten them up, repairing them using local tissue to augment it sometimes. And occasionally people will use other devices, some suture tape, fiber tape to augment it. But you're basically able to take what the patient has and snug it and tighten it up. And the reason it works is the ankle, unlike when you're going through a long distance in the knee joint, it's a very small ligament. So anatomically, it's really different from kind of elbow ligaments that you have to repair using other types of tissue or an ACL reconstruction. And what I always explain to patients is, yep, you did tear your ligaments, but still 90, 95% of people with this problem an ankle sprain, get all the way better, full return to sport, no need for surgery with conservative management. I won't do a brostrum unless it's been three months. Obviously, there's always exceptions to that. If I have a super high level track athlete, runner, cutter, pivoter, soccer, lacrosse, someone who's a cleated athlete in particular, where they have to do the cutting and pivoting, and they're six, seven, eight weeks out, not getting better, loose, especially if they're not loose on the other side, especially if you know that this has been a change for them and now they're in the off season, maybe on that unique circumstance, you'll push it so that they've returned to play. But a big reason I discourage primary care physicians from ordering an MRI with an ankle sprain, it's not going to change our management or it really shouldn't. But then once the patient has seen what it, you know, all the things that you might see, all the things you can capture that's stuck in their head that there's something really wrong. Can you walk us through the brostrum repair for those who are not familiar with it? A lot of times the brostrum is combined with other surgeries. And so usually the brostrum is kind of the last step. Many people have cartilage injuries or synovitis in the ankle. So it's not uncommon to be doing a scope than a brostrum. It's also really common to have concomitant perineal pathology. You might be doing a perineal debridement, then a brostrum. And technically, the surgery I do is called a brostrum gold. There are the two ligaments that are the most important around the ankle, the ATFL, the anterior talofibular ligament, and the CFL, the calcaneofibular ligament. 
there is a posterior talofibular ligament because it rides underneath the perineals. And because it's really rarely injured, we do not repair that. So you basically go in and you try and find the remnants of these ligaments. And then you attach them back on, tightening them a lot as you do it. I personally place anchors in the bone and then go down and pull the tissue back up into the bone. Other people like to drill tunnels through the bone. In terms of right or wrong, there is no right or wrong. It's often how people have been trained. Studies have compared the two techniques. They're both equally excellent. And then most of us do what's called a Gould modification, which is you take the inferior extensor retinaculum, a little piece of tissue, just distal to these ligaments, and then you pull that over on top. That improves the strength of your repair. I would say of the surgeries I do, it's a tie between brostrum and a tendon transfer, of which I'm more neurotic about in the operating room in terms of holding the foot in neutral position throughout closure and then throughout splint application, because I don't want any tension on this thing I've just pulled back together for as long as possible. Because in my opinion, kind of the trick of a brostrum is getting them to scar down so that that scar tissue functions as well as the original native tissue, the scar around their repaired ligaments, so that they're stable. And everyone stretches it out. Just like with Achilles, we have tremendous data on how everyone stretches out an Achilles repair, and you kind of can't repair them too tight. For a classic Brostrom Gould, you really can't repair them too tight because it's their natural tissue. It has collagen fibers. It will stretch out. The caveat there is some people are now augmenting with fiber tape. So if you're using something synthetic that doesn't creep like our natural tissue does, you can absolutely put those in too tight. I personally don't really modify my rehab much if they've had that. Can you go over what sort of like post-op restrictions there are, what that protocol, what your protocol kind of looks like and why? So my protocol is, I'm very particular about it. I think everybody out there has their own protocol, but this one may be the most, other than again, a tendon transfer. So like if I've done a drop foot tendon transfer, I get real fussy. This is one where I get real fussy if anyone veers off of it, because there is a logic to it. Um, My usual post-op protocol is for two weeks of non-weight-bearing in that splint I've put on. I want their incision to heal. And it's usually 10 to 14 days. I won't say it's always two weeks. It's sometimes shorter. And that's just get my incision healed. And I always say to patients, don't get a stupid complication. Elevate your foot as much as possible. After two weeks, as long as incision looks good, we take the stitches out and I put them in a boot. I let folks come out of the boot minimally, mainly because I'm always afraid with patients. If I give them an inch, it'll feel good and they'll take the yard. They can do some gentle dorsiflexion. But what I write in all caps, obnoxiously, on the PT script, which is to start at four weeks post-op, is all caps, truly, no active or passive eversion or inversion. The logic is what we know from kind of soft tissue repair, most of it around tendons, clearly not ligaments, because most of it comes out of the hand literature, is that it takes at least eight weeks before folks are throwing down sufficient scar tissue that you should ever be trying to test its strength. The ATFL and CFL control eversion inversion. It's their natural tissue. It's going to try and creep and stretch 
I do not want them actively or passively inverting or everting the foot. So they begin four weeks post-op progressing weight bearing 25% of their weight each week. And I emphasize with them, no one knows how to do this without a physical therapist. Please don't try this at home. The first time you put weight on the foot will be in front of your physical therapist. And, and I tell them if they're not going to make time for PT, then we shouldn't bother with the surgery. Because I think the physical therapy is probably over 50% of the outcome here. Getting it right. It, it, this one is little tiny ligaments, lots of body weight. You get it right or you don't get it at all. Once they're at full weight bearing in the boot, doing only active dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, they come back in. I examine them. That's when I test the repair, make sure they're still feeling stable, make sure their swelling's looking good, make sure their pain. I want them chomping at the bit to get rid of the boot. That's when I transition them into an ASO. And then in all caps, again, obnoxiously, I write may begin active eversion inversion, no passive eversion inversion. And I think this is where surgeons and physical therapists sometimes diverge. My physical therapist will also often be like, they're a little stiff. And I'm like, yes, perfect. That was my goal. And I'm like, oh, but they're stiff in the high. I don't care. And they're going to get it back. They inevitably are going to go back to their cleated sports and they're going to stretch it out. The other thing I make them do is they have to sleep in the boot until at least eight weeks post-op. And that's non-negotiable because when we plantar flex our foot, we have post-tib. What does post-tib do? It's an inverter. It cranks your toes in and you're stretching out my repair. So I say sleep in the boot as long as you can, but a minimum of eight weeks. And I often have them get like a plantar fascial resting night splint, you know, something a little lighter weight, but I want them held in neutral to really get it to scar in. You said that usually a Burstrom Gould is going along with some other surgeries. What are a couple other common ones that it goes with? And, and does that change that early post-op restriction? I shouldn't say... Always, I should say often. So commonly, people have a osteochondral lesion of the talus concomitant with this. So we'll do a scope and a microfracture. Sometimes if people have had chronic instability, they'll have created big spurs in the front of their ankle and I'll arthroscopically go in there, clean out a potential impinging lesion. You know, the body's creating tissue to try and stabilize it. You clean that out, then do the brostrum. And then a lot of perineal pathologies follows with a lateral ligament. So it's kind of like people get meniscal pathology with ACLs. The mechanism of injury of an ankle sprain often hurts the perineals as well. I make the decision to do perineal tendon surgery, both based on an imaging, but much more importantly, based on exam and trying to figure out between the two, which is driving it. But if you have a perineal tendon tear and have laxity, if you don't repair the laxity, you're much more likely to re-injure it. If you have a cartilage injury of the ankle, and you repair that, and you don't stabilize the ligaments, then you're much more likely to have recurrent instability and keep on beating up that cartilage that you've just tried to stimulate. You want to make sure that you share with PTs about, about the rehab after the brostrum. Yeah, I think my general thoughts, especially for lateral ligament, perineals, post-tib type rehab, is they got to be awesome with closed chain before we open them up. So someone has to be great at biking, elliptical, before they're allowed anything on a tread. Just not, not an option, not a discussion point. If they're tweaking on a bike, they're not ready. And I think sometimes we'll use, myself included, like, oh, but you're X number of weeks, you should be here. Whereas in reality, it's a huge normal curve. And some people are at one end and some people are at the other. 
but tissue takes time and recovery, both emotionally and physical from surgery takes time. I hate when people tell me that they're rapid healers. I'm like, oh, so you're Wolverine. That's amazing. (laughs) I'm going to cut your finger off. Will you grow a new one? And they're like, well, I didn't mean I'm like, you're human. Stop it. There isn't such a thing as a fast healer unless you're a child. But once we have gone past puberty, we all take a certain amount of time to heal. We just do. And yeah, are there some people who are a couple days early? Sure. But they're not weeks or months early. That's, that's not, I'm always like, that's not a thing. Like you don't disobey physiology. You may be more resilient and tough and be able to push through stuff, but the tissue takes the time it takes, you know? And I think that's also the challenge is that how we communicate about pain and recovery is really difficult. We don't have great words around it. They vary by culture. It's not like snow with Eskimos where we have a hundred different words for it. People's experience and what they're feeling is really, really different. So when I'm counseling folks about working with their physical therapist and they'll be like, oh, I was really sore after PT. I'm like, okay, sore like you went to the gym or sore like you fell down. And they're like, oh no, like I went to the gym. I'm like, good, that's appropriate. But when they say, you know, no, it's it's more like I, I fell down, I twist, I'm like, all right, you need to let them know so that they tune it up and do different things with you. I think my other Brostrom pearl I'll throw out there is the balance boards and stuff. I don't ever really care if they can get back to doing that after a Brostrom. And in fact, I they make me anxious because I'm always afraid they're going to twist and fall. So from my end, I would much rather we get them back to physiologic loading and return to sports, like looking at a return to sports program as opposed to some of the more measurable things that we can do in the office setting. My thought is, okay, let's ramp them back to what they want to do, but things that are meant to strengthen, like you're not going to strengthen the ligaments. So at best, you're trying to strengthen the perineals, and I'd rather do it under physiologic loading, such as, you know, once they can bike, once they can elliptical, then let's get them on the tread. Then let's get them on the tread with an incline. Then we'll start, you know, and I often will tell people, print out a couch to 5K. I know that you were running eight miles a day before your injury. You haven't in a long time. Gait is complicated. And then you add on cleats, turf, or grass, and cutting and pivoting. It's incredibly dynamic motion. It just takes time to get back there. That's a great segue because I was going to ask about anything that you... Anything you specifically looked or looked for in regard to return to sport? Because I know you do work with some high-level athletes. Anything that you really, any tests or measures or anything that you are super excited about when you decide to clear somebody? I chicken out and I say that the physical therapist is going to have to be a partnership with me in terms of clearing you to play. I listen to the patients if I know them well. If they're a high-level athlete that they have a trainer, the trainer's often in the room with me or on the phone with me and they know. And the players usually know. It's rare that you're having to nudge them along. What I will say is that in the office, when I have someone and I'm like, do you think you're ready to play? And they're like, I'm not sure. If they're running and cutting pivoting athlete, I make them do jumping jacks. If they can't do jumping jacks, they're not ready to go back and play because it's actually a pretty complex movement where you're both jumping and you're everting when you land. So if they won't do a jumping jack or they do it awkward where they don't think about when you do a jumping jack, how you land, you in tow. If they're unwilling to do that, they're not ready. I have zero evidence to support it. So I'm a super evidence-paced, super nerd who likes studies and research. And there, when someone's like, I'm not sure, I'm like, can you do 20 jumping jacks? Go. And if they'd like jump right up and do it, I'm like, yeah, you're ready. Go start to play. Get get back your ground game. 
And if they won't do jumping jacks, like you're not ready to be talking about playing in any sport unless maybe it's biking. You know what I mean? But you heard it here. Casey Humber jumping jack test. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing the Humber tomorrow. It would be so efficacious if we had a really good mechanism. I do have physical therapists who have an entire return to play programs and assessments, and I defer to them. But in terms of what I can do and what is always scheduled as a 10-minute office visit, Jumping Jack gets me Jumping a lot. Jacks. I love it. I, I also will will say, give me your phone if they have a watch on. And I'll go to their, you know, if they have an Apple watch on, I'll go to their activity and I'll scroll back and be like, okay, pre-injury, you're doing 12,000 steps a day. You're doing 6,000. I'll say you're not, you know, I know your endurance isn't up where you're ready for X, Y, Z. I also get a lot of joy, less with the broster, more with other reconstructions I do where they'll show me. I'll be like, okay, let's look at your monthly and you can see someone who'd had like really bad arthritis or something or a bad Achilles tendinosis and had dialed back. And you're like, you are walking 50% more than you were before surgery. And then that's one of those days where it's the best job in the world. And so with that, is there anything else that you want to leave listeners with? Any any pearls, any advice, any guidance in your experience regarding foot and ankle rehabilitation? You know, I think that it's going to be an exciting time with data and informatics hitting our field. And I think the more I get into my career, the more I recognize how incredibly collaborative the space has to be. I'm working with these amazing researchers in a gate lab group where we've been studying Achilles work and we're trying to create wearables that can influence how we help rehab and recover people. And I think we're about 10 years out from getting lots of real-time data so that we'll have better ways to assess return to play than somewhat, I don't want to say crude, but like somewhat kind of crude instruments like a jumping jack, where we'll be able to look at how smooth their gait is, how much they are coordinating in tandem versus unloading versus rocking. I think that's going to be a really neat area. And that's what I'm super jazzed about in terms of rehab space. I also think identifying where we need to do work and looking for opportunities to collaborate with your PM&R, orthopedics, sports med, all, all the people who want to collaborate. I'm trying to launch a project here because nobody's like studied gait and pregnancy, but recognizing the complexity of it and the partnerships of rehabbing people, but also we don't know a lot and looking for mechanisms to partner and learn and apply all of this cool new technology is going to be really, really exciting. And I truly think the big data informatics hitting our understanding of gait and rehab, like this is an awesome moment to be a PT and be in this space because the reality is I can do the most perfect surgery in the world. And I counsel people on this. I can do the most perfect surgery in the world. And there is a hundred percent chance that you can screw it up if you don't follow the directions, because very few of my surgeries happen in isolation. Even the simplest surgeries, we have an incision that has to heal. And what makes the difference in these outcomes is so often both the patient coming in, you know, there's tremendous inequity in our country. There are people who are less healthy, who are more prone to trauma who are you know, being left out of things and don't have access to physical therapy, which is heartbreaking. And then you have people on the other end who are the super fast healers who don't need to follow your directions or who are the folks who need the nudge so that they don't get stiff and scarred. It's not just the surgery. No matter what you're doing in orthopedics, it's not just the surgery. But I think with foot and ankle, 28 bones, the foot and ankle, really complex, moves in so many directions. 
we really need you guys. And the partnerships there are just the most rewarding part of my career personally. But the only way we're going to move it, like I feel like we've done a lot of the work that we can in silos. The next move is going to be this translating from the OR to the PT office and like looking at the recovery and really figuring out how to optimize it because so much of it's rough. Casey, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us and make foot and ankle super fun and tell us everything you know about Barostrum. We really appreciate it. One last time, thank you so much, Dr. Casey Humbert, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge, your experience, your time. And for all of our listeners, thank you, as always, for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.